everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I've been thinking a lot about the band TLC, because, you know, I'm a human being. Specifically, I was thinking about how in the movie House Party 3, they played the fictional band Sex as a Weapon, and what a great name for a band that is. I guess it shouldn't surprise me that TLC was good at coming up with a fictional band name, because they did such a good job at coming up with names for themselves. I mean, Chili, Left Eye, T-Boz, those are some objectively great names. I heard that Left Eye went by the name Left Eye, because at one point a guy complimented how attractive he found her left eye, and she thought that was a really funny, very specific compliment. And so I like to imagine that at some point she had a conversation with T-Boz that was along the lines of, yeah, so I'm going to call myself left eye now, and when we're on stage, I'm going to cover up my right eye with a condom so that it draws attention to my left eye. And then T-Boz responds, yeah, and I'm going to call myself T-Boz, because I love Tom Bosley. And then when we get on stage, I'm going to dress like Tom Bosley. And Left Eye was like, wait, Tom Bosley like Howard Cunningham on Happy Days? And T-Boz was like, no, Tom Bosley like Father Motherfucking Dowling. And the costume never really came together, but I like to think that she brings that Tom Bosley energy to the stage. In summation, House Party 3 was pretty good, but it was no House Party 2, because it wasn't a pajama jammy jam. Now let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by It's Zack Empire. Striking while the iron is low on the hiss, moving to the front of the line with the synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, It's Zack Empire. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 13, October 1985. Crisis. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Bob LaPan, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call. Cyborg. Starfire. Nightwing. Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Jericho, Cole, and guest starring? Well, pretty much everybody. Seriously, Crisis makes the Defenders for a Day storyline look like a one-man show. Previously in New Teen Titans, Starfire was exiled from her home planet of Tamaran because it was at war with a bunch of slave-mongering gassy space lizards. Unbeknownst to Coriander... Her parents and their allies recently defeated the Fawdy Reptilian Monsters once and for all. Hooray! A jubilant Tamaran dispatched their most dramatic spacefarer, Captain Carass, to inform their spicy space princess of the good news. In more terrestrial events, Cyborg has been playing phone tag with his off-again, off-again, kind-of-but-not-really-love interest, Sarah Sims. The mostly molybdenum marvel attempted to leave flowers on Sarah's doorstep, but his botanical bestowal was burgled by a new wave punk with aggressively pleated pants. Unbeknownst to Victor, Sarah has been dating a co-worker named Gary for the last several weeks. Gadzooks! 
Will Starfire finally learn of her home planet's victory? Will Cyborg finally learn about Sarah's relationship with Gary? And what exactly is the crisis referred to in the title of this issue? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, yes, yes, and, oh boy. The titular crisis refers to the DC crossover event Crisis on Infinite Earths. See, there was this nigh-omnipotent cosmic jerkhole named the Anti-Monitor who decided to destroy the entire multiverse with an enormous wave of antimatter. A different nigh-omnipotent cosmic entity who was less of a jerkhole named the Monitor thought that that was a bad idea, and along with his adopted daughter, Harbinger, recruited a team of heroes and villains to try to stop him. Everybody fought, a bunch of people died, and all the parallel universes got combined into a single universe. For a little while. Also, while all this was going on, the sky turned red for some reason. Captain Carras and his crew of Tamaranians are on their way to Earth when they notice an enormous wave of antimatter. The captain poses dramatically and then tells his crew to fly the spaceship faster. They do that, and it seems to work. Meanwhile, on Earth, all of the Titans except for Cyborg are at Star Labs, trying to figure out why the sky's red all of a sudden. At first, they think it might have something to do with Trigon, on account of the last time the sky was all fucked up it was his doing, but then they remember that he's dead, and as we all know, if someone in a comic book dies, that means they are dead forever. They ask their buddy Dr. Clyburn if she knows what's going on with the sky, because apparently in addition to being a nuclear physicist and a medical doctor, I guess they figure she's a meteorologist too, but she's got nothing. While the other Titans are browbeating their Omni-Tool doctor pal, Cyborg is wandering around the streets of New York, brooding and thinking for roughly the millionth time that he really ought to ask Sarah Sims to be his girlfriend. Apparently, due to a combination of his aforementioned brooding and the fact that the brim of his hat is pulled down pretty low, he hasn't yet noticed that the sky is red. Vic's oblivious moping is interrupted when a street vendor attempts to sell him a pair of sunglasses that he claims will protect the wearer from any adverse effects of the unusual weather. Cyborg is unimpressed by the sales pitch, but finally notices that the sky is red. Once jolted from his reverie, Vic realizes how self-involved he's been. He resolves to go talk to Sarah about their relationship. He heads over to the school for children with disabilities that Sarah works at so that they can discuss things. Yeah, because nothing demonstrates not being self-involved like showing up at somebody else's job site so that you can talk about your feelings. Damn it, cyborg! When Vic arrives at the school, he is shocked to see Sarah embracing Gary and telling him that she loves him. She says that she has been trying to tell Vic about this for a while, but he's always too busy. Ouch. Sarah turns to see that Victor has been eavesdropping, but before they get a chance to talk, the children swarm around Vic and insist that he go play with them. Wordlessly, he does so. Across town, Wonder Girl meets her husband, Terry Long, on the campus of the university he teaches at. Terry says some creepy shit about how attractive the teenage girls on campus are, because Terry is a creep. They head to the cafeteria to get a bite to eat when Dick shows up and asks if he can join them. He's looking for some relationship advice. Terry is like, hmm, is there any way you can leverage your position as a mentor and authority figure into a romance? No? Then I'm out of ideas. Dick is concerned that Coriander is kind of murdery. 
He thought that she was mellowing out a little, but lately in some of the team's recent battles, she's been overcome by bloodlust in a way that he finds unsettling. Donna's like, hey, some people just like killing people. If you're going to date Starfire, you're going to have to learn to accept a little murder every now and then. Back at Sarah Sim's school, she and Vic finally have a chance to talk. She's like, you have every right to be mad at me. No, he doesn't. He's like, yeah, I do have every right to be mad. No, you don't. But I'm super mature, so I'm not mad. Well, kind of mad, but just in a passive-aggressive way. Let's be friends. They hug, and then Cyborg leaves and wanders around until he finds some criminals to punch. He doesn't have to wander for very long until he encounters a gang of punks led by a guy who is named Blood Rover for some reason. Hooray! Blood Rover and his buddies are looting an electronics store, so Vic beats him up until he feels better about himself. He's reflecting on the fact that bionic limbs and a steady supply of lawbreakers makes a pretty serviceable substitute for therapy when he hears someone calling his name from above. It's Harbinger. She has some ill-defined cosmic powers her adopted dad the Monitor gave her, and she'd like Cyborg to lend a hand in the nonsense that's going on over in the Crisis on Infinite Earths series. Wait a minute. Two super-powered costumed characters meeting each other for the first time? Well, that can only mean one thing. Yep, it's time for another one of those patented superhero misunderstandings, trademark offset lowercase c tiny r in a circle, that are all the rage in these funny books. Harbinger chases Vic around and asks him to help her, and Vic runs away and tries his best to beat up Harbinger. At one point in a fun bit of meta-narrative, Cyborg goes crashing through the wall of DC headquarters at 666 Fifth Avenue and has a brief encounter with some of the staff there, including Marv Wolfman and Eduardo Barreto. It's cute. The mandatory super squabble ends when Harbinger saves the life of some innocent bystanders and Cyborg realizes she's one of the good guys after all. He reluctantly agrees to join her and they go off to do whatever weird cosmic bullshit they need to do. Over the course of the next week, the crossover event intensifies and the rest of the gang gets caught up in the action as well. They team up with Superman, Batman, and the Outsiders to rescue some kids from the Empire State Building. Then a whole bunch of other weird cosmic shit happens, and time breaks or something, and they hang out with Firestorm and Black Canary and Captain Marvel and the Freedom Fighters and the Justice Society, and they fight Nazis and dinosaurs and pirates and cavemen. You know, stuff like that. Sometime during all that hullabaloo, they end up reconnecting with Cyborg, so that's nice. The gang is hanging out in their newly rebuilt T-shaped skyscraper headquarters when Starfire starts freaking out a little. Not in a murdery way, despite Dick's previous concerns, but in a sad way. She hasn't seen her parents since her exile from Tamarin, and what with the universe going all bonkers lately, she's pretty concerned about them. Overcome with a combination of homesickness and filial anxiety, the overwrought space princess's pupilless eyes fill with space tears. Suddenly, Captain Carass from the beginning of the issue teleports into the Titan's living room and is like, Hi, Coriander. In case you were wondering, your parents are fine. But you have to come back to your homeworld with us right away, or the whole planet and all of its spice-rack-named inhabitants are doomed! To be continued. (laughs) 
And as our eagle-brained listeners will remember, my good-for-many-things brother Corey is currently banished to Niflheim after having drank from Odin's enchanted mead flagon. Now, fortunately, he's trapped in a pretty nice part of Niflheim, and even more fortunately, he was able to find a magic portal so that we can keep recording this show. So, how's it going, Corey? Hey, it's going pretty good. Hopefully the magic portal will continue to do its thing and uh, we'll stay connected here so that we can talk about this very busy issue of a comic that we read. So much happening. I'm surprised there aren't more portals being opened in this issue, although maybe they were. I have so much difficulty remembering what is going on in Crisis, and I think for the most part we're just going to have to ignore that. Yeah, I feel like Wolfman, and maybe this was the case when people were reading this particular issue of the Teen Titans, but that uh, Wolfman felt because Crisis was so successful that everybody just kind of knew what was going on with it. Yeah, or for the most part in this issue, you can kind of ignore most of it, and there's a kind of separate Teen Titan through line that you don't really need all of the background Crisis stuff to follow. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty busy. That's true until you get to the last few pages, because like you said, about nine-tenths of the issue is kind of a normal Titan story, and the only thing is that the sky is red, and people are like, oh, that's weird. And, you know, some crime is picking up and things are happening, and then the last few pages, it's just explodes into full-blown crisis stuff. And that was the point at which... You know, as somebody who hasn't read that stuff since, oh, maybe sixth grade? Yeah. It seemed pretty jarring. Yeah, I I can understand that. I think for the most part, Crisis is more the setting of this issue than the plot of the issue. And so I was able to just kind of take the scenes where there's like Freedom Force fighting the Justice Society and Infinity Inc. in one panel and just be like, oh, that's just like what's happening out the window. Like, in a different comic book, that would just be a picture of some palm trees in a beach or a crowd scene or something. And I think that's kind of how you have to read this if you're going to try to separate it from Crisis, which I really think we need to. I had a lot of people ask me, so are you guys going to cover Crisis on Infinite Earth? And the short answer to that is no. And the long answer to that is, oh, God, no. (laughs) Because the very thought of writing a previously in for any given issue of a crisis comic book just makes my brain want to melt. There's just way too much going on. So we'll touch on the ways that it's going to impact the Teen Titans. But other than that, we're not going to dive too deep into that stuff. Because even without it, there's plenty to talk about in this issue. But let's get the crisis stuff out of the way first. So what do you remember about Crisis on Infinite Earth? Uh, Let me see. So, okay. Previously on, uh, the Monitors fought. All the other Earths got blown up. Supergirl died. And, um, oh yeah, the Flash. That's all I can remember. How's that? Pretty good. Just in very broad strokes, Crisis was an attempt to clean up continuity in the DC Universe, which had been going on for about 50 years at this point. A little bit less, maybe. 
and had been getting continually more and more messy as they had been trying to bring back more of the Golden Age characters and all their exploits took place on a place called Earth 2. But you have these weird examples of because some of the heroes were introduced back in like 39 and they would be what are considered the old timey characters like the Justice Society, where you have like the original Flash and the original Green Lantern and guys like Wildcat. So you got those guys who are considered old timers, but they also were contemporaries with Superman and Batman who are part of the new crop. And so just like timelines were getting frustrated because in the mid 50s, they started introducing what are the Silver Age characters, which was the Flash who wore the red suit and didn't have the uh, walk on his head. And in that first issue, he talked about how he was a fan of the old Flash comic book, and that was where he got his name from. And then, yeah, there are all these, they started to separate it to, okay, well, that stuff all happened on a different planet in a parallel dimension. And then there just started being a lot of different planets in parallel dimensions. And things started getting kind of convoluted. And by kind of, I mean incredibly convoluted. And this was an attempt to kind of tidy that up. And coming out of it, the main takeaways are, yes, there are the deaths that you mentioned, but also they changed it so that Superman and Batman had showed up about five years ago at the same time as the rest of the Silver Age heroes, more or less. And Wonder Woman hadn't showed up yet. She makes her debut, I guess, post-crisis in a book that was written and drawn by George Perez. But that is now the first time that she has interacted with the rest of the DC universe. So they're treating her like a new character, which is going to cause some issues for Wonder Girl going on. I feel so bad for her in terms of her continuity because they had really spent a bunch of time pretty recently straightening that out and making her like, okay, her continuity didn't used to make sense, but let's get it all ironed out. Here's what really happened. And then they just made it so that none of that stuff happened. And it's weird that it's the same writer doing that to himself there. Yeah, it's a pretty gargantuan effort. You know, if you think about it to over the course of, what was it, like 12 issues or something? Yeah, it was a 12 issue maxi series. Yeah, so to hit the kind of reboot on the entire DCU and 12 issues, it's kind of remarkable that there's not more uh, continuity fallout. Yeah, and I mean, they have had other like big events to try to reboot and recombine. And then lately they just started doing some storylines that have just scrubbed everything and started from scratch, except for the things that they want to keep, which seems pretty arbitrary. But we're not going to get into like the new 52 and all that stuff. Some of the other things that were happening with Crisis is it was also an attempt to mainstream some of DC's more recent acquisitions. So I think this was the first time that they started introducing immediately after Crisis or during Crisis. They had acquired all of the Charlton heroes, so they're a part of the DC universe now, and that'd be Blue Beetle and Captain Atom and... Uh, to a lesser extent, like Peter Cannon and Thunderbolt, but all of the characters that the Watchmen characters were based on, because Night Owl is a Blue Beetle stand-in and Captain Atom is a Dr. Manhattan or vice versa. So that was introducing them into the main DC universe. I think this is the first time that the Shazam Captain Marvel gets put into the mainstream DC universe. So that's the other thing that's happening with that. And those are all characters in Crisis. 
the reason that Cyborg is the focus of this is because he was one of the first characters to be involved in the Crisis storyline before the rest of the Teen Titans were. So he shows up in Crisis on Infinite Earth number one, along with, I think it's 19 other heroes and villains that are the main focus of the storyline. So there's just a lot of juggling going on with that. And it's a really impressive feat. And yeah, there are ways it doesn't totally work out, but definitely an A for effort. Yeah. And um, to think that I believe Perez initially wasn't supposed to work on it and then like heard about it and said, that sounds awesome. I totally want to do that. That is that is an artist who's not afraid to take on some challenges. No, and I have so much difficulty imagining it drawn by anybody else. I, I think of him even more than Wolfman as being synonymous with the Crisis on Infinite Earth thing. He is just so good at doing crowd scenes and multiple, multiple versions of heroes at the same time. And he does a great job with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Speaking of other artists who I think did a great job with uh, Crisis storylines, Eduardo Barretta takes over the art in this issue. And once again, this, to me at least, the streak continues of really top-notch art being in this new reboot of the new Teen Titans. Yeah, Barretta does great. And I don't know if it was him or Wolfman manages to insert himself into <laughs> into the story <laughs> in a pretty funny way. Yeah, I think it's both of them. There's so much about that one little sequence there. Cyborg crashes through the side of 666 Fifth Avenue. I can't believe I haven't heard more conspiracy shit about the fact that the headquarters for DC was at 666 Fifth Avenue. Like, that seems like the kind of thing that I should have been getting bizarre newsletters about from whack job organizations for quite some time. So I just assumed that that was a joke that they had put into the issue. Is is that its actual address? That was actually their address, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. That's funny because it's drawn in that panel in such an obvious way. I was like, oh, look at that. They're making some kind of joke. Yeah, I mean, the joke was that that was their address, not that it was the number of the beast. But yeah, it was fun to see all of the DC creators there, such as they were. I wasn't able to figure out who all of them were, but it was pretty obvious which ones were supposed to be Dick Giordano and Marv Wolfman and Eduardo Beretta, and that was pretty fun. I will say also, it's really nice. We've talked about how great the artwork has been throughout this series, and the one through line of the artwork has been Romeo Tangal, and I think he lends a level of consistency to this series that you wouldn't see otherwise, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, I got to agree with that. I, I think the inks really do bring that consistency. So let's jump in and talk a little bit more about the Teen Titans storylines that we're dealing with here. We get Captain Karras, or Karras, continuing his mission to chat with Starfire. What do you think about that part of the storyline? I don't know. So, like, we knew it was coming, and they have a little bit of a hard time flying the spaceship, but they, they get there and meet up with Starfire at the end. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of retconning where it now was always part of their mission to investigate the crisis situation, but also bring back Starfire. I don't think that had been established before. 
it could come up in the sartorially, but that section for me is already way too full. So I just want to talk about the uniforms of the rest of the crew, because we see that a lot of the guys serving on his ship are dressed in uniforms that looked really familiar to me. And it took me a while to realize that they were essentially color-swapped uniforms of the original Starfire, who I think is now going by Red Star, the Russian dude who showed up in the 60s. And I thought that was kind of a fun homage or through line of continuity to that one comic book that Marv Wolfman wrote back in like 69 or 68 or whatever. Did you catch that? No, I didn't, but I'm I'm looking at it now and I can totally see that. It's it's some but not all of the crew have that red star. They've got the goggles, they've got the sigil on the chest. It really is the whole uniform. It's just that it's in red and blue instead of green and red. I got the the Bosworth hair. <laughs> yep. I mean, you have to assume because the cowl covers up where the mullet part would be, but the top part looks pretty consistent. Yeah, I mean, you can see the business in the front, but you know that that party is in the back. Other than that, Coriander doesn't have a ton of a story arc in this, except for at the very end, she is uncharacteristically, I felt a bit of a dick to the rest of the team, in essence saying... You guys are so lucky you're orphans because you don't have to worry about whether your parents are okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Like, you know, the people that she's talking to are all essentially orphans. I think with the exception of Jericho, she's the only person on the team that has two parents at this point. And she says, at least you know about your family, your grandparents, the ones you love. My parents are out there on Tamaran, or maybe they're dead or killed in this crisis, or even before. Ouch! Like, know your audience. Like, at least you know where your loved ones are. They are dead. Like, the group she is addressing almost exclusively, they are dead. Yeah, it's funny. When I, I, I didn't actually read it quite like that, although it makes sense when you say it. I just, I was thinking like, oh yeah, Tucker and Maudie. Like, Vic knows where his grandparents are, but it didn't occur to me that, like, oh yeah, everybody else's is uh, is dead. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I just, I don't know, man. Just know the audience you're speaking to with that shit. The other storylines, other than the cyborg storyline, who he's the focus of most of it, we see that Dick is once again concerned about Coriander's bloodlust. And that is something that we've seen from him since I think like issue three or four or something. And it's another one of those storylines that seems to be almost in a regressive loop where it just never changes. Like every two or three months, he'll just bring up, I'm really concerned about her bloodlust and the fact that I think she's going to kill somebody. And she will either just be like, yeah, well, I'm probably going to kill somebody. It's what I like doing. Or somebody else will bring up, yeah, she's from a different culture where it's cool to kill people. And it just becomes frustrating because I understand that is a very legitimate concern. If I was dating somebody who I was like, yeah, they're kind of into murder, but I guess that's just them. They're from a murdery place. I can see that being a point of conflict. But the fact that it never gets addressed in any way other than a static level of concern that he has becomes really frustrating to me. Yeah, although on page 10, we see it handled from the Terry Long perspective. And so I, I have a little bit of a theory about about this one based on one kind of odd panel. Yeah, what you got? 
So they're at the campus dining hall or a fast food place near there, Wonder Girl and Dick and Terry. And as they're sitting down, they're talking about that where basically Wendy is saying, oh, she's, you know, that's her culture. She's brought up in a murdery place. And it zooms in on Terry's face and you see like this puff of smoke coming out of his mouth is <laughs> how I, and so I was like, okay, so he's got like one of those little one hitters that looks like a cigarette <laughs> in his pocket. And he just took this big haul off it. And as he's exhaling, he says, as he's breathing out the smoke, they say you can't tame a jungle animal. And everybody just sort of stops for a second. <laughs> and they're like, dude, what? I feel like in this comic book specifically, there are so many times when everybody should have turned and looked at Terry and been like, what? Yep. He's such a fucking turd bag. I mean, first of all, calling their friend a jungle animal is so fucked up on so many different levels. But you also have, he is a professor on campus, and Donna shows up and is just like, man, there sure are a lot of hot young ladies on this campus. And he's just like, oh, yeah. And essentially says the, but, you know, just because you're on a diet doesn't mean you can't look at the menu. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, what what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know he's been hitting that one hitter all day, but that's no excuse. He's so fucking skeezy. I think the way he phrases it is actually even worse. It, it, it basically sounds like it's uh, champagne room rules, Donna. I know they can touch me, but I can't touch them. So it's all cool. <laughs> is that what he says? Uh, it's something like that. Let me take an actual look. <laughs> I think I'd remember. She says, I've seen the girls on this campus. And he says, so have I. Hollywood East, I call it. And just like the movies, they're for looking at, not touching. Well, shit. So I guess he's not technically saying it's champagne room rules. But in one sense, it's almost worse because he's a college professor who has been tasked with educating these young women and is saying women are there to be looked at. Also, it lends credence to your theory that he's always hitting the one hitter if he has been reprimanded in the past for trying to touch movies. I'm sorry, Mr. Long, we've been over this before. Movies are for looking at, not touching. And then the panel right after that, he just really awkwardly looks away and says, Oh, so how's it going? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe if I just pretend I didn't say that, she won't notice. It's so creepy. Yeah, he's a a, a creeper in this issue. In a way that I think was probably, I don't know, maybe less noteworthy back then. I do remember having, this would have been years after this, but I had a freshman in high school ceramics teacher who was the first time that I had heard the phrase, just because you're on a diet doesn't mean you can't look at the menu. And uh, I think he was talking about high school girls when he was a teacher. Oh. Yeah. And at the time, it was just like, that's a little bit off, but not a what the fuck, you know? Right. So I guess... Terry's a product of his time, but it's also a gross fucking creep because not everybody was a gross fucking creep back then. No, not everybody. He also has the bit in there about he lets Donna win at wrestling and kind of winks at at Dick and says, I don't care who wins. I just like wrestling with her. She makes kind of a lighthearted joke about winning arguments and then being the the one with muscles in the family. And that was his uh, response to it. That didn't bother me as much. I think that's fine in terms of, like, lighthearted, flirtatious banter and shit like that. What bothered me about that exchange was the way that both he and Donna were treating Dick when he was like, hey, I have something I need to talk to you about. 
this is kind of serious. And they launch into like their playful, like sex banter shit that's just like, yeah, we like to fuck. And it's like, yeah, uh, uh, okay, guys, <laughs> but I actually have a serious problem here. <laughs> I think that's just their way of saying, oh, we don't really want to want you to talk to us about that. <laughs> Maybe if we're totally gross, he'll just drop it. Ah, uh, they're both so bad at picking up on different social cues. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's jump into all of the shit that happens with Cyborg in this issue, because... There's a lot of it. Yeah. It starts off, he's walking down the street, hasn't noticed that the sky has been totally red for quite some time now. How do you pull that off? Like, I get he's got shit on his mind, but seriously? Yeah, I guess um, he's just really preoccupied and he's not looking at the sky. He's distracted by the guy trying to sell him the space goggles, that's for sure. (laughs) That would be pretty distracting. Did you pick that up as a reference to They Live? Because I kind of read it that way, and I don't know if that was me reading into it. No, I didn't I didn't pick that up at all uh, from it. Oh, okay. That would have been consistent, though, with the timing, I think. I think so. I'll have to check the exact timing. It was mostly just like, oh, it's an 80 stories about aliens and sunglasses. I wonder if that's what they're talking about. Nope. They Live came out in 1988. Sorry, past me. That guy was a trip, though. Dude, I want those space goggles. they cool little, like, lightning bolts etched onto the front of each lens. Mm-hmm. And they'll, you know, they'll keep you from going blind once the skies turn red and there's aliens in the sky. I also really liked that he's talking to a guy who I know he's dressed in street clothes, but it is still pretty obvious when you're having a face-to-face with a guy that half of his face is shiny and made out of metal. And after their conversation, he doesn't remark on that at all. He's like, that's a perfectly normal thing. But then when Cyborg sees that there's trouble and jumps like a block into the air, his immediate reaction is just like, oh, fuck, that guy must be a space alien. What a jump. That is such a ridiculous leap of logic (laughs) where it's like, no, you saw he's half robot and you live in a universe where there are known superheroes there are also in the dc universe at this point very few black superheroes hub hub hold on yes cyborg is wearing a fedora (laughs) that's true i'm sorry you're right i'm not giving this guy enough credit (laughs) and he has a high collar on his jacket (laughs) that's disguise 101 Still, his face is shiny and made out of metal. I feel like it's like if you were in like a universal horror monster universe and you're like, oh, no, I'm worried about this guy. He he just freaked me out. He's uh, he's covered in hair and he's trying to bite me and he keeps howling at the moon. I think this guy must be a mummy. I don't know if it's <laughs> like, quite that mixed up. I mean, we, We've seen the power of the hat. Okay. That stuff aside, though, I really actually do genuinely enjoy the different reactions to the sky being totally red that you see are happening in the DC universe. There are certain people like the glasses vendor who are trying to exploit this financially. There are people who are just ignoring it or like Cyborg who don't even notice. There are people who view it as an apocalyptic sign of the end times. And there are people who are just in a general panic, but trying to figure out what's going on. 
I feel like that sets this in the DC universe in a way that you don't always see. This is a place where there are like potentially world-ending crises of a quasi-supernatural level on a fairly regular basis. And people are going to react to that differently. And I actually really liked that. Yeah, it was pretty well done. Definitely gave Cyborg the option to fight some uh, opportunistic crimes that were taking place, like Blood Rover's gang. (laughs) Oh, Blood Rover. He'll never be able to lead a gang again because he's going to have a lisp from his broken jaw. Man, Blood Rover's gang needs to grow the fuck up. He's still the same blood rover he always was. I don't care if he has a slight speech impediment. And a lot of very, like, tough people that I think would be, they would be fine as their gang leaders have had pronounced lisps. I mean, I don't see anybody fronting on Mike Tyson for that shit. Exactly. Yes. Blood rover's gang, grow the fuck up. Also, I love that he is named blood rover. Nobody even calls him that outside of the caption work. And it's in quotations. It's just, this guy's Blood Rover, obviously. Yeah, it's like, it's an evil and cute at the same time. It seems like it's almost a parody of some of the, like, names that you get of a lot of the extreme, grim and gritty superheroes in the 90s. Like, where everybody was dark something, or shadow something, or blood something, or something hawk, or something wolf. Blood Rover isn't that far off from Blood Wolf, but it's enough of a tweak that it's pretty significant. Yeah, it really is. It's like a like a friendly dog or an Irish folk song. Ah. Blood Rover. What sport, what we, sport had? we had with ye? <laughs> exactly. Oh, Blood Rover. So, yeah, we see how Blood Rover and the glasses vendor and some of the generalized DC citizens react to the sky being red. One group that I would like to see their reaction to it is sailors. And I feel like that's a significant omission because how how are they going to deal with that? Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. It's both. How the fuck do you deal with that? Well, that's a... Ragnarok, right? That's the, isn't that the third part of that? Red sky all the time, Ragnarok? That doesn't rhyme. It's got to be red sky all the time. Time for sailor crime? Uh, <laughs> good times in Niflheim? Ooh, red sky all day. Sailors gonna play. <laughs> red and white up all night? Nope, that's drugs. Yep, Um, blue and yellow kill a fella. Right. Yeah, I feel like this has got to cause an almost existential crisis to sailors in the DCU, and I would like to know how they are reacting to it. Yeah, that's fair. We don't get to hear about how that's going. Back to Cyborg's story. We finally get the resolution to the Cyborg, Sarah Sims, will they, won't they, are they, aren't they off-again, off-again relationship that they've been having, he decides to show up at her work to talk about their relationship. Not cool, buddy. Not cool at all. Especially when she works with children and it's in front of all the children that he wants to have this confrontation. I was so pissed off at him. And uh, he's not happy by what he sees. He sees that she is uh, smooching on Gary and telling him that she loves him. And, uh... It seems like her and Gary have a pretty decent relationship, which is nice to see. I I think that she deserves that. 
Initially, Cyborg is pissed off, but he is swarmed by all of the children that he has worked with in the past, rolling up on him and being like, oh, hey, Cyborg, and being kids at him in a fairly believable way, which I actually really liked. Yeah, that was pretty cute. They're swarming on him and they're like, oh, Cyborg, it's so good to see you. And dropping information about Gary and Miss Sims at him in a pretty guileless way. That's like, can you believe this shit? I thought that was cute, but I also liked that he's like, well, I can't react in front of these kids. Uh, And he ends up just going off and playing with the kids until he has a chance to think things over. And then he talks and has a relatively okay discussion with Sarah about it. He still seems to not be really taking any culpability in the situation, which is not great, but at least he's not too mad about it, which I guess is a bonus. Like, he's relatively understanding he wants to continue to be friends with her and still see the kids, which is good, although he does say that he's still angry at her, which he really doesn't have any cause to be. It's funny because, yeah, he's basically saying, you know, I like you so much that it doesn't make sense that even though I never expressed anything about it and have been too busy to spend any time at all with you, that you didn't like hang around and wait for us to start dating. Yeah, it's not a great look for Cyborg. Another thing that I did like, though, about the kids, we see a lot of the kids drawn with futuristic cybernetic prosthetics in a way that I don't think we have before. But I like the fact that the DC universe is a place where you do have Star Labs and you do have these advanced technologies and seeing them actually used by civilians with disabilities in a way that made sense, I thought was really nice to see. Yeah. The discussion with Sarah and Gary ends with him meeting Gary. And it's a weird exchange. It's from Cyborg's perspective, it's the fairly ubiquitous and, in my opinion, never actually funny half joke of the, if you ever do anything to hurt her, I'll kill you, man, which it never lands right. I understand the idea of being protective of your friends, but it always comes across as patronizing and never fully a joke. I have a friend who always reacted to that line the same way, and I always kind of appreciated it. He would always say, yeah, well, you should see what I'm going to do to you if she ever hurts me. Mm, Yep. Which just, I feel like, draws into relief how ridiculous a statement that is and how, like, yeah, you don't actually have anything to do with our relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But before Cyborg makes that statement, it does seem like Gary is trying to give Sarah the no, 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 shut up sign when she's saying that she still wants to go to the movies with Cyborg. Did you catch that? I was trying to figure out what he was doing with his with his finger. <laughs> I don't know what else. Though. It looks like he's being like the no, 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 shut up, shut up. I was reading it like, you know how sometimes you walk around the corner and you've forgotten something and you sort of point back to the way you need to go to get the thing you forgot? Oh, like if he's just like, oh, I'll just leave again. I didn't realize you guys were still talking and hugging and shit. Yeah, that was that was my reading of it. But no, I, I like yours better. Because, yeah, she's she's saying, uh, I think of you as so special. I don't want to lose you as a friend. Heck, we could still see movies together. Gary isn't into them the way that I am. And it looks like he's like, no, no, just no. Oh, I, you know, Gary likes movies. He likes the theater. I would assume that he likes movies, too. Oh, it actually looks like he's doing the 
like finger drawn across the neck like well wait no so he's doing that with one hand and then with the other hand he's gesturing towards himself with the thumb yeah it's really tough to tell what's going on in that panel but it is definitely something he is trying to signal sarah in some way and she is not catching it yeah or maybe he's pointing to let her know like i am gonna quietly leave now (laughs) is is that okay i i don't want to be here for this talk which is super understandable. Yeah, it's pretty awkward. So Cyborg says something else weird in this issue that I felt was kind of indicative of Marf Wolfman's writing style. As Harbinger, who I keep wanting to call Harbringer, but I've been reprimanded for that before. It is Harbinger. She binges Hars. She doesn't bring them, which I think is rude of her. I think she should bring some Hars every once in a while. <laughs> Especially if she's going to binge on them. I mean, come on. It's just common courtesy. Bring your own horrors. Bring enough for everybody. Or don't binge on them. Mm. But when he is talking about the fact that her powers don't seem to be... Like, she's zapping him with stuff, but it doesn't seem to be having any destructive effects. He phrases the fact that he notices that in kind of a weird way. He says, okay, lady, maybe you're more show than tell. Only one way to find out. That's a weird way to phrase that. That would be implying that the telling would be the more impactful of the two things than the showing. And I feel like that is kind of indicative of Marv Wolfman's writing style. (laughs) That's why we have the show and tell category, or we did for a long time, where he would just be like, okay, I know that there's the picture of this happening and that Perez is drawing that, but uh, I'm just going to want to have a little extra oomph, so I'll have somebody explicitly state it, either in the captioning or in the word bubble. And uh, I thought that was kind of a funny driving home of that point. Yeah, definitely like saying something like, I don't know, more bark than bite would make more sense, but there we go. Well, there you go indeed. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into the minutia? There's just one other panel that supports my Terry Long is super high theory, and it's the way that he watches Dick and Donna fly away after their conversation on page 11. Okay, let me take a look at that. I can barely keep his eyes open. (laughs) Wow, you are right. He looks super high. They're flying, man. It doesn't make me like him any better. But oh, no, it's not an excuse. It's just an observation. I think it's a fair one. It is really weird. You're right that he's got that puff of smoke coming out of his mouth in that one panel, too. There is a lot more smoking in this issue, certainly, than we are used to seeing, especially by non-evil characters. I feel like we're used to seeing that if somebody's smoking, then it's a sign that they're like a sinister government operative. Maybe that's just me reading more X-Files into stuff. But we see that... Uh, Gary is smoking, and he is certainly supposed to be a sympathetic character. We see that just a bunch of background people on campus are just smoking cigarettes as they are walking by, and it seems much more a slice-of-life thing in, in this comic than I'm used to seeing in modern times, where I feel like it is usually, if somebody is smoking, there is a social shaming aspect that the narrative will be pushing on them. Yeah, but this is still, what, 1986? 85. So, I mean, I think I still remember, like, growing up smoking in cars with me in the car at that point. Yeah, I know my grandma did. She was very, not just confused, but indignant that my mom didn't want her smoking in the house at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so that that cultural shift took a while. I mean, probably up until the 90s or so. Yeah, but as I said, Terry Long is not one of those characters who is smoking cigarettes. So yeah, he is, you're right, he is sneaking a one-hitter. And uh, I guess good for him. It's not doing him any favors, but I, I, I think it's making him say things that he might otherwise think through a little bit better. I would hope so. God, he's a gross creep. He is the gross creep. <laughs> it sucks because there are aspects of his relationship with Donna that I really like. And there aren't that many times when you see a more powerful woman with a less powerful man physically as in like fictional depictions of that. And so I appreciate that that's what's happening. And I appreciate that in a lot of ways he's like... He is a civilian, but he is largely supportive of her superheroing thing and isn't like overly protective of her and recognizes and celebrates the fact that she's a strong woman. But it just always comes back to the fact that he met her when he was her professor and he continues to say gross, creepy stuff about hitting on undergrads. And so, man, fuck Terry Long. Fair enough. Well, you ready to get into the minutia? I am ready. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey. Yes? What was your favorite sound effect? I think there was only one sound effect, unless I missed it, and that was the womb of Cyborg crashing into 666 Fifth Avenue. That was certainly the more dramatic one. There were, in fact, two that I caught. It is a pretty good whom. I think it's well done, and the letters are almost interlocking in a way that it looks like it's making a sound tunnel as he's flying, so it's a pretty good sound effect. I slightly preferred when Donna and Dick are sitting at the fast food restaurant or campus cafeteria. Dick's beeper goes off, and there is a Bzz, bzz, bzz happening there. And I just liked that it was a beeper, that it's the new Teen Titans beeper. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, very, very 80s. Very 80s. I, I could have put that in the timestamp category, but that category got very, very full very, very quickly. So I'm just going to transfer that one into the sound effects category and uh, clear a little space in the timestamp. Yeah, fair enough. There, I feel like, was a, a lot of overlap also between clothing and uh, timestamps in this issue. Yeah. So let's get into one of those. Which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's do the timestamps. Okay, so Corey, what timestamps did you have in this issue? Yeah, I had a few. I had the beeper that you mentioned on page 10. It's a fancy beeper, but it's still basically a a beeper, which to me seems very 1980s. On page 16, Cyborg makes a a reference to John McEnroe hitting a tennis ball real hard. Yeah, and that's already an 85 kind of a dated reference. Like, McEnroe, I think, peaked very early 80s. I still think of him more as a 70s tennis player. By 85, your Yvonne Lendl's and your Boris Becker's would have been a more timely reference. I think it's a little bit soon, but you could maybe get a Mats Vlander or a Stefan Edberg. I mean, yeah, there, there's uh, maybe more timely 
tennis pros he could have focused on for that statement. But I guess maybe Cyborg isn't as avid a 80s tennis viewer as I had previously thought. Well, I, I don't think there was a more angry tennis player than John McEnroe. Sure, but by 85, there were definitely people hitting tennis balls harder. Oh, yeah. No, I, I was more so thinking like just the, the fury. Well, if he had said, uh, I feel like a little glass of orange juice who got just hit by McEnroe, that would have made more sense. Because, you know, he, he's <laughs> the only guy I think of hitting those with his racket. Yeah. Yeah. What a bad sport. I also had, and and this is one where I mentioned it kind of transitions over into fashion, but on page nine, which is the college campus layout, there's a dude wearing a yellow polo shirt, and that collar is starched and popped like nobody's business, and that seemed very mid-80s to me. He is a cool-looking guy and also looks like he is way too old to be on the college campus, unless maybe he's a professor. But the woman he's with looks much younger, so I guess that's maybe a Terry Donna situation. But yeah, I noticed that guy too. He's got the uh, the popped collar on his polo, and uh, it's unbuttoned a little bit. But the bifocals that he's wearing with it definitely made him seem more mature than your average college student. Mm-hmm. We also have a reference to Carl Lewis on page 15, who would have been a... Olympian contemporary to those times, a track and field star, although he had a very long career, so it's not a very specific timestamp. We also have Beast Boy referencing that he's done everything short of taking out a sign that says Desperately Seeking Cyborg, which is, I believe, a Desperately Seeking Susan reference, the Madonna film. I wondered about that. But since it's Beast Boy and he also made a reference to um, the journalist Bethany Snow is being Mata Hari, who I was like, oh, that must have been an 80s thing. And I looked it up and oh, no, she was a, a Dutch exotic dancer in World War One, who was a spy for Germany that got executed by a firing squad in France. And so I just don't trust anything Beast Boy says as being contemporaneous to uh, where they are. That's fair. One thing that was definitely contemporaneous to when they were right then was Blood Rover and his friends looting boomboxes. Ah, yes. Did you ever have a boombox? Oh, man. I had a really disappointing... <laughs> it's just like one of those those stupid kid things where looking back on it, I was like, oh, man, I was such a jerk. But it was for a birthday or a, some event where you get gifts as a kid, and I told my dad, okay, I want either a Walkman or a boombox. And by boombox, I meant like, you know, one of the like really big ones, like from the uh, break-in movies. Yeah, or Beat Street, right? Or yeah, either either way. Just what was in the hip hop culture at the time. I wanted to, like the biggest, like took the most D cell batteries as absolutely possible, kind of boombox. Uh huh. And so my dad, being my dad, he went and he did a bunch of research and he figured out the like the best quality one, and it was this Panasonic, but it was tiny. Oh. It was it was only like eight inches tall, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so disappointed, but I it was a gift, so I knew I had to be nice and. That was like one of my early memories of like faking my like, oh, oh, wow, thanks. <laughs> that thing's not going to earn you any street cred on the mean, unpaved roads of Barrington, New Hampshire. The school bus. So kids would, would get these big ass duffel bags and put their giant boom boxes in the uh, duffel bag and then play them on the school bus. And so I wanted to be oh. able to, to compete with those guys, but I, I'm not bringing that little Panasonic out. I'll be left right off of the bus. No, man, that'd fit in your damn fanny pack. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that small, but yeah, it was a disappointing boombox. I'm sorry. 
It's okay. It did have great sound, though. Yeah, but that's not the point. You don't want one that's all tell and no show. Exactly. I wanted the one with like the, the equalizer thing that doesn't really do anything, but it like takes up half the whole front. Oh, I loved that. I had one that did have the equalizer on the front, and I was very dumb with it. The only thing I ever did with that equalizer was turn everything all the way up on it. Well, yeah. I still think of that, and it felt so cool just sliding all of those things all the way to the top. <laughs> right. Yeah, and the other timestamps in this, we had the potential they live reference and a whole shitload of fashion. So let's move on into the fashion category. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you feel are most worthy of note? So right off, starting at the, the beginning of the issue, there were the, the crew of the Tamaranian spacecraft who had the Red Guardian kind of throwback suits that you mentioned. I thought those were pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the civilians really take it. Space Goggles Man on page four. He's got like a Michael Jackson, like red leather thriller style, but a vest. Yeah, given his hairstyle, I was reading it more like a Rick James outfit, mm-hmm. but... It's really something. And I mean, I don't want to gloss over those. uh, Does he call them space goggles? Because those things are fucking rad. Yeah, yeah. Goggles or glasses alternately, I think he uses. Those space goggles are fucking awesome. They are Ray-Bans with little lightning bolts painted on the corners of them. Mm. And I would totally wear those. Yep. And he's got like tight white maybe jeans, but they have a stripe, a vertical stripe down the side. And also like those Kung Fu movie bad guy bracelets, like big giant leather bracelets with studs in them. Yeah, he is dressed like a slightly less done up version of Shonuff from The Last Dragon. Oh, yeah. We do see behind him in one scene, there is a young black street tough who is wearing a denim jacket with a Confederate flag on the back, which was causing me all kinds of dissonance there. Yeah, so I actually wanted to bring up that series of panels. My thinking was it was a coloration miscue, because in the panel that's above that, the one where Goggles Man is all freaked out by Cyborg jumping like an alien, there's a guy who's got like a flowered headband and a like a blue members only jacket in the corner of that panel dropping a beer you see him oh yeah he's drinking a schlitz and he's just dropped it when cyborg jumps it did not occur to me that that's the same guy because they're just the the skin tones are done so differently in those two panels yeah it's like they had him turn brown and turn around and he's got the confederate flag on his jacket which seemed really weird to me I wonder if it was a decision made after they had given him the Confederate flag on the back. They're like, well, we want to make it clear that this isn't racist, so we'll just make him black. Yeah, that's what a convoluted thought process. It is confusing because his, I think it's a different, supposed to be a different guy in that panel, but from a continuity standpoint, it does seem like that should be the same person, but... Yeah, he's colored differently, and he's no longer wearing a flowered headband. It's a solid red headband. He's also missing the eye patch or the sunglasses or whatever it is that the beer dropper is wearing. So maybe it is supposed to be a different guy, and they just, yeah, they were worried about how the Confederate flag would be red. Uh, Which I think is a legitimate concern. It's mostly just confusing to me. We see that Gary is another member of the Popped Collar Brigade. He has a very nice uh, Popped Collar black 
button up that he has. Well, I call it a button up, but it certainly isn't buttoned up. No, he's got a very strict um, never the top three or four buttons policy. Right. And it's a pretty good look for him. Certainly a very 80s look. Donna is wearing a rad white jacket that also has a popped collar. Dick also has a popped collar on his brown leather jacket. So much fashion in this issue. Harbinger has an interesting look going on. She has an outfit. It's got one sleeve. It's mostly like a bathing suit, but then with some like almost what look like gun holsters on her hips, like one little flap coming down on either side. And then an armored bathing suit area, but that is the only part of it, like coming up to about her navel. That's the only part of her costume that has any armor. I mean, I guess I get wanting to protect that region, but if you're going to have any armor, it seems like you would want more armor than just over your junk and lower tummy. Well, to be fair, she is also wearing a helmet. I mean, part of a helmet, yeah. It's cut so that she can still have long flowing hair coming out of the helmet. That's true. It does have a hair egress in the back. (laughs) Yeah, and it doesn't cover up most of her face either. That's kind of like a Magneto look. It's a forehead and cheek helmet, but it's certainly an interesting look for her. And uh, speaking of other super people in this, one that very much could have gone in the timestamp category are the specific costumes of Supergirl and Black Canary on page 21. It is the 80sist of 80s Supergirls. Yeah, it's a Supergirl outfit that has shoulder pads and the mini skirt and a hairband with very teased up hair in it. And we see that the Black Canary look, this is not a popular Black Canary look, but it's one that I actually really like, uh, where it's got like almost the Blackhawk looking logo over the chest, and then it turns into shoulder pads. And I think it's actually pretty chill. And she's got a black headband on with that, too. It's remarkable you were able to prize that detail from everything that's going on in this page. It is a very busy page indeed. But I think a very well-drawn one. And yeah, just, you know, honing in on the 80s fashion, especially in characters who in other eras had very, very different looks. Who's the Uncle Sam guy? Is that actual Uncle Sam or is that a a character? That is Uncle Sam. He is a character. He is the leader of the Freedom Fighters. That is a group of Characters that are owned by DC, I think they bought the license to them in the 70s. Uh, They were drawn initially by Lou Fine as part of Eisner Studios. But many of the characters in that panel, including Uncle Sam, are part of the Freedom Fighters. The guy in the big white suit is the Human Bomb. He's one of those characters. There is Phantom Lady, who has the green cape and ample decolletage. You get Black Condor is the guy who has the big blue flowing cape that is tied to his hands uh, and he is wearing with like a single suspender down the middle that connects to his blue speedo and then off in the corner you have doll man whose power is that he can shrink to the size of a doll oh man yeah if if i had the condor guy's cape i know that every single time i would open a door or a drawer or anything i would just get hopelessly like tangled I feel like, yeah, it would get caught on things, and I feel like any time I tried to punch somebody else, I would end up punching myself in the dick. 
it's a it's a bad costume. Like it would just tack catch on something and I would just be like, like the momentum would carry through with a centrifugal force thing and I'd be like, no! Bop. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bad news. But yes, that guy is Uncle Sam and he is the physical manifestation of the spirit of the United States. Uh, but in a good way. Wow. That's a lot. Indeed. Honestly, I think I have four or five other things written down for sartorially speaking, but uh, let's move on to a different category, shall we? Sure. All right, this was actually a pretty difficult one for me. In every issue of a Teen Titans comic book, there is an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad and who was your Beast Boy? All right. Um, you want to start with Aqualads? Sure. I had a lot of trouble in this category because I was angry at most of the Teen Titans for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Who did you end up with? Yeah, so initially I was thinking I would go with Cyborg because he seemed pretty quickly to let go the you know thing with Sarah and, and be cool about it. But yeah, in retrospect, the fact that he never really found a way to approach her and at least as far as the reading audience knows, make everything clear about what his feelings were. And then that he decided to go talk to her about it at work made me have to not vote for him. Like, don't do that, please. Yeah, so he was off the list for me for that reason. You have Starfire talking about how, oh, you orphans have it so easy. (laughs) You don't have to worry about whether your parents are dead because you know they're dead. Yep. So she was off the list for me for that reason. Donna, I feel like I very much was uncomfortable with the way that she reacted to Dick's request for some real talk with like, hey, me and Terry like to fuck all the time. It's like, no, he's trying to have a real conversation with you. So I I gave her a pass for that because there's certainly been times, I'm sure, in my life where somebody or other is like hey i have this heavy thing to talk about and i really wished i had an out (laughs) so i gave her a pass and i actually had her as my favorite or as my aqualad because i felt like she did a great job coordinating the rescue of what kind of looked like the empire state building and in general was pretty active but specifically on page nine when dick and and her and terry are, are getting their lunch they're talking about what was going on, and Dick's talking about how he's maybe okay with the fact that Starfire killed some giants because they were in a war. And Terry just freaks out, and he's like, uh, giants? She killed Olympian giants? And the, the following panel is just uh, Wonder Girl kind of kisses him on the cheek and says, oh, don't worry, honey, we'll go someplace too one day. Maybe with luck it'll be Newark. And she, it's the kiss is really very, I read it as completely patronizing <laughs> to Terry, which... <laughs> I thought it was really funny after what a weirdo he had been being. So that was why I voted for her. Yeah, but I feel like she's also just kind of placating him. And I, I feel like she is tacitly endorsing his shitty behavior in this issue in a way that I was not okay with. Uh, I went with Cole. She made a crystal barrier and didn't piss me off in any way with her behavior. And it's a a minor thing, but she was the only person I could really say that of. Jericho didn't piss me off, but he also didn't seem to actually do anything. 
we see that Beast Boy has moved out of Steve Dayton's house because he doesn't want to deal with the fact that his stepdad's dying. And also he's Beast Boy, so he's not an option. And it just really, through process of elimination, I came down to Cole or potentially Halo. I believe she is a teen and she is fighting with the Teen Titans and she rescues a little girl. But if we're going with actual members of the Teen Titans, I guess I'm going with Cole. Yep, fair enough. Low bar, but uh, good choice. Conversely, with the Beast Boy, I had difficulty choosing just one because there were so many characters I was angry at. I think I've gone over most of the reasons in ways that I eliminated them from the best. But in my mind, I think Cyborg was the worst, to me at least, just in terms of you don't confront your significant other at work for a dramatic confrontation. Yeah, not even over the phone. No. I'm just saying, like, if somebody were to do that, that wouldn't be cool. Fully agree. I had for my Beast Boy, Dick Grayson, for not calling Terry out um, after saying his girlfriend was a jungle animal. I didn't think that he should have just let that one slide. Yeah, that seemed pretty fucked up. Also, with Dick, I'm just really sick of his regressive loop of his character arc with Coriander being every few issues mentions the fact that he's not cool with the fact that she's so fond of murder. I get that it's a big deal, but at this point you need to either get over that or not. Either you're cool that your significant other likes to murder people or you break up with them. I think either one is fine. No, you know what? Either one is not fine. Uh, you should not date a murderer. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a pretty sound policy. Who did you have as the president of the drama club? Which character in this issue acted or overacted in the most dramatic fashion? Yeah, so my vote was for Captain Karas. Karas? Karas? Alex Karos. Karos? He played George Papadopoulos. Let's just call him Captain Papadopoulos. Uh, my vote was for Captain Papadopoulos, uh, especially on pages one through three. He's uh, gesticulating in an extremely dramatic manner. And I don't know if it was just the issue that I had, but he is so freaked out. At one point, his eyes change color from green to blue and then back to green again on page three. Let me take a look. And if that's not overacting, I don't know what is. He seems to be wearing a whole different outfit in that one panel, so I wonder if that's a different guy. His uh, shirt is light blue or white instead of red, but otherwise the uh, outfit's the same. I think it was just the coloration got screwed up, because he's the only guy with like the headband and the kind of fishmail-looking armor. Oh, I assumed maybe that was like his second-in-command, like that's the number one outfit. But yeah, if that is the same guy, then yeah, I guess his eye color does change. And he's pointing in a couple other panels and then doing like the five-fingered point and smashing a keyboard with a fist in the other hand. Like, that's just all very overacted. I think that's a pretty decent choice. That's some good gesticulation. Um, I went with Coriander for the scene in which he is telling the orphans how lucky they are as she is crying and literally biting her fist. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. So, yeah, I had that, but she did just barely edge out Cyborg for that one, because I do feel like deciding to have a big talk with uh, your 
significant other at work is a very drama club kid move. Mm-hmm. And Borgie also on page 22, he's doing a thing where he's clasping his hands almost as if in prayer and nodding his head, talking about how it's so damn hard. Mm-hmm. We also see his reactions as he is overhearing Sarah and Gary talk, and that he's using his superpowers to do that is pretty not cool. I know he face palms himself. But yeah, I did decide to just barely go with Coriander for this one. Let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo did you feel was worthy of highlight? Oh man, I read through a couple times, but the only one that I could really identify and it was used affectionately was a cyborg being referred to on page 19 as Rusthead. Yeah, that was one of the only inter-Titan insults that we got. I did decide to focus on something that you brought up earlier, which is Beast Boy calling Bethany Snow the Matahari of the TV news set. Because that's his way of saying that she's a traitor or a, uh, a double agent. And I think that's as close to an insult as we really get in this. It's harder to find the insults in the big dramatic arcs, especially when the bad guy that they're fighting is almost a force of nature in the way that the Anti-Monitor is. You don't really call that guy a big dumb jerk. Well, you certainly got it coming. Touche. Maybe you do call that guy a big dumb jerk. Speak truth to power. Yeah, I'm not afraid to say that from the comfort of Niflheim. Yeah, man. Hey, Tornado, you're a real asshole. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I went with the Matahari. It was a tough category, but I do think that was the only real example of an insult that I could find. But I did want to bring something else up, which was... What? We have what could perhaps be described as... Oh, a picket a sign. A picket sign. End of the world. Okay, I got it. I, got it. I, I mean, technically, it's a sandwich board. That is not a picket sign. You don't think that guy's protesting the fact that the world is ending? Uh, I thought of it as more like a PSA. Yeah, I guess that's fair. And yes, he does appear to be carrying it as a sandwich board. But that did put me on the lookout for picket signs. And I think this may be just an advertisement that was in the store window. But we see that after Cyborg has beaten up Blood Rover and his gang... One of them does have a sign that landed on top of him that says, come back soon. And I love the idea of somebody carrying a picket sign that says, come back soon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Like a very polite way of saying, go away. Oh, man, that is indirect. I don't know. I choose to believe that that is a picket sign, that that is somebody carrying and that they are showing that to the aliens. You know, they believe that the Earth is going to end in 2012. It's only 1985 at this point. So aliens, come back soon. Come back soon. It's a stretch, but I'll accept it. Well, thank you. That's very big of you, Corey. Oh, you're welcome. What was your favorite panel? Oh, man. Yeah, the art in this was quite good. I liked uh, the one I mentioned already that we kind of disagree about on page nine, Terry being surprised about the giants getting killed and then Donna, how I viewed it as kind of patronizingly uh, kissing him. I just thought that was kind of funny the way it was drawn. It looks like she's trying to eat his beard. I don't think that's happening. (laughs) 
Well, I hope not, but that is kind of what it looked. Doesn't it look like she's just sucking on his the corner of his beard? It's gross. That would be gross. No, I, I don't. I didn't read it like that. But moving on, I think my favorite panel is, um, I believe it's page 18. And I don't know if that is actually the Empire State Building, but it certainly looks like it could be. And the rescue that's taking place and the perspective from which it's it's rendered kind of from the ground up, I found really impressive. That is really nice. I also like it whenever we get to see Metamorpho even briefly. So, so that's a fun panel. Yep. It's got the creation of the uh, crystal business that you gave Cole uh, kudos for earlier as well. Mm-hmm. We got Black Lightning rescuing some kids. Yeah, it's fun to see all the little cameos that are afforded by the fact that it is a crisis crossover issue. I mean, Batman and Superman are on the next page. I don't think we even mentioned them. My favorite panel is the the big one where you see the giant anti-monitor that is lurking over the whole page and inset into his chest. You see the image that I talked about before about the freedom fighters fighting various members of the Justice Society and Infinity Inc. And we see Dr. Light 2 in that panel as well, which when it's a person that you don't hate, it's a pretty cool looking outfit. Which one is Dr. Light 2? She's the one wearing the Dr. Light outfit. Oh my goodness. Without the goatee, it was almost unrecognizable. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? Yeah, not bad. But yeah, overall, it's just a really nicely drawn fight scene. Has a lot of kind of chaotic energy to it. And the page layout design of all of that happening within the context of the giant outer image of the anti-monitor, I think is pretty cool. Good choice. It is an impressive panel, for sure. Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1986, and the month of our Lord, December, as we are going from the date of the reprints on this issue, what was Aqualad probably up to Wapoot? Yeah, so our sea-strengthened friend was in search of warmer climbs it being the middle of winter on the eastern seaboard and so he had uh, swum around to sunny california and while he was there he thought he might indulge his uh, amateur interest in aeronautics and it was actually uh you know through some back channels found his way into edwards air force base in california and uh, was hanging out and kind of walking around and checking things out and he found this really kind of interesting looking plane that he had he had never seen one before and he thought oh i should do some research on this because i know the the titans are always looking for uh, new technology and this looks, looks pretty interesting and so he was able to open the door and get in and check it out he realized at this point that he was starting to feel a little tired and he's like i'm just gonna lay down here in the fuselage and maybe just catch a little shut eye oh that's not a great place to sleep oh it's a terrible place to sleep because next thing he knew he woke up and they were you know, around 11,000 feet, not super high up, but definitely higher up than he wants to dive into the ocean headed around the world. So it turns out that he had found himself onto the Rutan Voyager, which is, it became the first aircraft to fly nonstop around the world without refueling. So they're going, they're flying along, piloted by uh, Dick Rutan and also, I don't know how to pronounce her first name, uh, Jana or Jenna Yeager. No relation to Chuck Yeager. 
Uh, is Dick Crouton any relation to Crouton Mogul, uh, Richard Crouton, who invented the Crouton? Routon with an R. Oh, not Dick Crouton. Okay. This was no short flight, so they left on December 13th, and they had about 6,300 or so miles to go without refueling, and so wouldn't you know it, Aqualad, with his prodigious hydration requirements, was really making his way rapidly through a lot of the liquids on board. In fact, for there to be enough for everybody, uh, all three of them on board, to be okay, he had to start dipping into some of the fluid that was used to actually power the propellers, which um, used uh, (laughs) hydraulic fluid. So there are these hydraulically powered props, which made him feel pretty weird. And also had the bad effect of removing the hydraulic fluid from the propellers. So he had to actually get in there and start cranking. Oh, no. Yeah. However, this was good because with his she-strengthened armed and hydraulic fluid-fueled fury was able to bring that plane its full 6,366 miles, uh, landing safely on the 23rd with a mere five gallons of fuel left and um, setting the world record. Wow. Well, good for Aqualad. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to say, he had a very busy December of 1986. Because early on in the month, Aqualad had some visitors show up at his house. Aqualad had been long known, we know through his uh, associations with Greenpeace. He was known worldwide as a political activist in many capacities. And one of those things was that he was a strong advocate for animal rights. And so, when a certain underground animal rights organization broke four chimpanzees out of the SEMA Biomedical Research Facility in Rockville, Maryland, they didn't know where to go with these four chimpanzees, so they brought them to Aqualad. SEMA had been doing horrible uh, biomedical research on chimpanzees. They had a very high death rate. And so these underground animal rights activists had liberated the chimpanzees and also took some cages and took a bunch of videos of what they had found and I believe stole some videotapes from the research facility and released those to PETA, a more above-ground animal rights advocate group. Aqualad was just horrified at what he saw that these chimpanzees had been put through. And so he wanted to help rehabilitate them in some way. So he called the only person he could think of who might have a better way to communicate with these animals. He called his old buddy Monsieur Mala. (laughs) Oh, wow. Now, Monsieur Mala, yeah, he's evil, but he is still a super intelligent ape. And, uh... He's evil, but he's not that evil, and he wanted to see something good happen with these chimpanzees. So Aqualad asked him, he was just like, what do you think would be helpful for these guys? How can we not just help rehabilitate them and get them what they need, but let them have some fun? What do apes like? And Monsieur Mala told him, oh, what do the apes like? We love musical theater and the French accents. <laughs> and so that is why oh, no. with Aqualad as a chaperone later in that month on December 27th, Aqualad took four very inconspicuous theater goers wearing trench coats and fedoras to the opening of Les Miserables on Broadway. Wow. 
What a paragon. And you know what? They loved it. I mean, they liked the funnier, like the Master of the House goofy songs better than some of the more dramatic numbers. But overall, Monsieur Mala was on the money. They really did enjoy uh, going to the theater. And that's what Aqualad was probably up to. Wow. Good job, Aqualad. And good job, Monsieur Mala. Well, thank you for joining us, Corey. (laughs) No problem. And thank you, listeners. This has been, I don't know, we'll see what it was. (laughs) It's been something. It has been a thing of some sort. If you would like to get into touch with us, there's a myriad of ways that you can do so. Uh, We do have a P.O. Box that is Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Love hearing from you guys. Love getting mail there. And I also love hearing from you electronically, as this is the future. If you would like to get into touch with us that way, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're Oliver. We're Oliver? We're Oliver. You've got to pick a pocket or two. More, please. More. Uh, uh, thank you for coming with me on that rare musical theater riff, Corey. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Don't get used to it. I shan't. We are also all up in the internet in its many forms. We're on the Tweetor, the Tumblr, the Facebook, LinkedIn. Oh, we're there. Grinder? Yeah, I think so. Sea Captains Only? You bet. Any other internet places we are, Corey? That's uh, all of them. Instagram. Uh, Yeah, Lisa runs an Instagram page for us, so we're up there as well. Um, And, you know, we love to hear from you in those places. If you would like to leave us a review someplace, I think that would be an awfully nice thing for you to do. So why don't you do that? It helps people find the show. We also have a Patreon page if you would like to support the show monetarily, which uh, I would certainly appreciate very much. If you would like to do that, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material uh, that I've put together, including the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. A podcast whose name has somewhat diminishing returns, although I don't believe that its content does. That is where we talk about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. And there's also a bunch of video reviews of classic comic books that I do that are up there, and a bunch of extra stuff, too. I know there's one that Corey and I did about the drug prevention awareness issue of New Teen Titans, and that was a lot of fun. There's uh, just a bunch of other stuff up there, too. So if you want access to that that is exclusive to our donors, then you can donate on our Patreon page. But mostly it's just a way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to keep doing it. So uh, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, other than that, you know, just keep on keeping on. And remember, red skies all the time, sailors do party crimes. And uh, as the space goggle vendor said, Pack my bags, mama. I'm moving to Pittsburgh. Amen. Thanks, guys. Goodbye. Bye. And they knew it. And as our eagle brained <laughs> fart. <laughs> <laughs>
You go brain fart. Oh, no. <laughs> Those are the worst. Well, they eat a diet almost entirely consisting of rotted meat. That's why they're the worst. Oh, so fetid. Oh. Um. <laughs> Stomach turning. Even. <laughs> oh, God. Plus, it's got to come out through a cloaca. Oh. Man, those birds nasty. Nasty. Nasty bird. <laughs> Don't mean a thing. <laughs> oh, you nasty birds. <laughs>